Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of the new podcast, An Ounce and a Pound. I am your host, Jason Mikma. Our time together is going to be spent exploring the concept of prevention and its role in our lives and communities. Most importantly, we will work together to discover how to make prevention a primary practice in all aspects of life. Today, we're introducing the topic of prevention. It's a simple enough concept that is often not talked about until after something has become a problem. So what exactly is prevention, and why should we care more about its importance? This topic seems even more relevant right now during a pandemic, but prevention is a universal approach, and we are going to take a dive into what that really means. Our guest, Chuck Clevegaard, is an expert in substance misuse and public health. He is the prevention manager for the Great Lakes Prevention Technology Transfer Center and a certified senior prevention specialist. Chuck, thanks for being here, man. And we are really excited to have you. Happy to be here, Jason. Looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, this is a really important topic. I I think that hopefully we'll be able to open some eyes or at least reinforce some beliefs. You know, I do want to start out very basic as we build into this topic. Um, And I did provide you a a potentially challenging question to get us started, Um, though we're certainly going to build on that as we go. So if you could sum up prevention in one sentence, what would it be? Uh, that's definitely tough uh, to, to talk about it in, in that term. Uh, so let me give you the sentence and then a little bit of background about Perfect. why I think that makes sense. Uh, I like one of my favorite definitions, probably one of the oldest in terms of William Lofquist's definition of prevention as a proactive process for creating conditions and fostering attitudes that promote well-being. Um, I, I think that that broadly describes the way that we think about creating safe and healthy communities. That, that it's certainly about substance misuse prevention, but, but for, for many decades in recent years, uh, prevention specialists have relied on a public health approach, looking at, at instead of just underage drinking, for example, we look at population health across the lifespan. You know, with a reliance on understanding data and risk and protective factors, you know, looking at elements in a young person's environment or anyone's environment that, that increase the likelihood of them engaging in health risk behavior of any kind. I think risk factors are really reliable predictors of lots of health and social problems, you know, antisocial behavior, violence, school failure, anxiety, depression teen pregnancy. So I, I think that most preventionists these days think, that, think of themselves as working at creating healthy and safe environments to address a, a multitude of issues and, and challenges that happen in communities. I also think that there's a lot of emphasis on, on health promotion uh, in, in today's prevention world, thinking beyond just protective factors, thinking about all the ways that we promote pro-social behavior where we enhance opportunities for bonding or create a sense of belonging. Uh, Certainly the use of evidence-based programs to teach social skills has become increasingly important around social emotional learning, which now is being also framed as prevention. Yeah. And I love how you're connecting the dots between all these different pieces of this puzzle. And, you know, and I think that we talk about prevention and you throw that out there and people think, oh yeah, I know what prevention is. But when you really dive into it, there's so many pieces to it. And you, I mean, you're throwing out a lot of really significant terms in in our field in the substance abuse uh, or substance misuse prevention arena, but it really is universal. Obviously though, right now, we're in a pandemic and there's always talk about what we should have done when that's certainly been a lot of the conversation recently. I mean, that's all 
clearly dancing in the arena of prevention. And you, you actually sent me an article um, before we were able to meet today uh, that kind of highlights prevention during this pandemic. And that's actually going to be, be linked in the description for this video so people can find that there. You know, we certainly hear the same type of language in the substance misuse uh, or substance abuse arena. Um, in both situations, the prevention conversation comes up after the fact a lot of times, uh, which is unfortunate. So that leads me to think that there needs to be a change in the way that people think about prevention. But where, in, in your opinion, Chuck, do you think we even start that conversation? I, first, I would agree wholeheartedly, Jason, that it's far too often prevention is an afterthought. Uh, I mentioned just a moment ago in my favorite definition that it's a proactive process. Mm -hmm. and that, that implies that we're on the front end of things and that we're upstream. Uh, I think that a couple of entry points uh, about how to start the conversation about the important role prevention can play. The pandemic has offered us this opportunity to do that in a number of ways. Um, first of all, it's, it's certainly true that all of us have been impacted by the pandemic, but what's also equally true is that, that we have not been impacted equally. Um, so we know, for example, that lower income folks are hit harder. We're, we're learning that more women disproportionately feeling the brunt of job losses. Certainly we understand right. what's happened with our elderly population and, and the fact that they're less likely to survive. So underlying health disparities means that the virus hits some communities much harder. Uh, and we know, for example, in, in Milwaukee, that they saw disproportionate rates uh, among black residents uh, in terms of the pandemic. We know the CDC generally found that in 26 states when they started to look at that. Now, I make that point about health disparities because prevention folks are uniquely positioned to contribute to the response as we understand the drivers of health outcomes. And what I mean by that is, it, so certainly in Racine, it would be just as true that, that the sort of social and economic determinants of health drive mm -hmm. health outcomes, including substance use disorders and other kinds of issues that, that I mentioned a moment ago. Um, so we think of the, that it roughly as conditions in the places where we live, work, and play that impact health risks and outcomes. And that's part of our, our toolbox as prevention specialists and prevention professionals to understand how to leverage the, the social and economic determinants of health in ways that we create healthier and safer communities. I think another entry point, Jason, has to do with the importance of the focus on science and data mm -hmm. right now. I think that, that so much of what's happening in terms of, of moving in and out of data uh, in science is, is that folks need to keep that emphasis there. And I think for, for decades, prevention has relied heavily on the use of epidemiology and data uh, and heavily on the use of evidence-based practices. You know, so for many yep. years, we've, we've looked at and, and, and directed uh, with, with very strong sort of expectations that folks use primarily programs with the highest levels of evidence, you know, the most culturally fit the populations. They're studied for the folks that we want to work with, and they've been studied uh, with the populations and the kinds of outcomes that we're expecting, and that we implement them with fidelity. All of that kind of science has never been more important, and prevention folks know that stuff. Finally, I think the other thing that's been more recent in the development of prevention is, is the understanding of, of trauma-informed care as it relates not just to the medical field, but, but in generally, that, that sort of trauma-informed understanding and care uh, needs to be the norm for communities as we move forward. 
I think that so many folks have experienced a great variety of trauma in this pandemic, everything from loss of income to loss of their business or their job or loss of loved ones in the most extreme case. And I think that, that prevention folks understand the relationship between trauma and alcohol misuse and the development of other kinds of substance use disorders and mental health problems. Probably the most important entry point to not leave out when you think about prevention and getting the conversation started is that we know how to leverage social capital in a community. And what I mean by that in terms of bringing people together, connecting people, creating partnerships and collaboration in ways that we can improve health outcomes in, in large part by enhancing social connectedness, by engaging and empowering the average citizen and, and the agencies that need to work together at the community level. Yeah, Chuck, you know, I do think you continue to, to hit on such an important piece of this puzzle. And I think what led to the creation of this podcast is really that, again, the connecting of the dots between all of the different things that are impacted and could be impacted by prevention. You know, you're talking about the pandemic and, and how it's affecting different populations and um, it's not equally being distributed. And there's certainly prevention practices that can go there. But, you know, then the article that you had sent me earlier, the critical role of substance misuse prevention during and after COVID-19 is talking about the increase of substance use during a pandemic, which is a direct result result of people being quarantined and dealing with new conflicts and new issues in their lives and, and sometimes in lives that are already quite stressed out, which then connects the dots to trauma-informed care and, and the trauma that people have suffered pre-pandemic and now are, are suffering maybe to a greater extent during pandemic. And you know clearly there's a, a giant spiral effects starting to happen with how all of these things are connected um, and, the, and really continuing to reinforce the, the importance of having a prevention mind around this. What are things we can be putting into place right now that A, will, will help the situation as it's unfolding, but B, you know, and we talk about this often being an afterthought, how can we put things in place so if ever there is a pandemic, for example, again, how will we be more prepared at that point to be able to deal with the, the situations that are near and dear to you and I? Um, but again, some of these broader topics that might be popping up again in a situation like this. Um, and I, I don't know that there's really a question there. So we'll, we'll dive into that uh, kind of the, the, the broader piece of that. And you obviously have a great deal of experience in collective impact. Um, you know, I think it's, it's really such an important piece as you were just starting to highlight. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Why is collective impact so important and, and what role is it playing in the success of prevention efforts? Major point, I think that, you know, what you're, you're hinting at here is that too many organizations are working in isolation from one another. I think that happens in, at neighborhood levels, community levels, uh, in sort of rural settings and in big cities. And I, I, I think that um, one of the tools that we now have a relatively newer understanding in the last decade is, is the framework of collective impact, where it brings people together in a more structured way to achieve social change. Um, so prevention, again, has that long history I mentioned a moment ago, of working across sectors and fostering that type of collaboration and working at systems change and a focus on equity. So all of those things brought to the table, this provides us with that framework that's a little different than just having a coalition meeting. Um, so this is about sort of looking at sort of bringing together partnerships and networks that are distinctly different, meaning that unlike most collaborations, collective impact initiatives involve a, a centralized infrastructure, meaning that they're sort mm -hmm. of, a, they're stopped in a specific way, have some goals together. There are dedicated folks working on it 
there's a structured process that leads to a common agenda. So you might bring four community segments together to all, all of, to agree to work on an issue. And it might be something like stigma around opioid use. And each of them agrees on some common measures. They agree on an agenda together. There's continuous communication and they look for ways to create synergy through mutual reinforcing activity among everybody involved. Now, that again, sounds like a lot of collaboration, but again, sure. it brings a framework to it that, that I think begins to formalize some agreement about what you're trying to do, and it creates that two plus two equals eight. <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, and I think it is, that is an important differentiation, and I, I appreciate you kind of breaking that down for me, uh, and I think uh, certainly more intentionality, it sounds like, behind the collective impact approach, that dedicated central structure and, and building that that capacity behind uh, an effort. Those of us in the prevention field certainly have heard the quote, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I think that is a great piece for us all to kind of rally around within the prevention field, but you know, it, it certainly always can carry deeper meaning. And I, I like to dive into those things a little bit. And obviously that is the onus behind the name of this podcast that we are, we are on here today. So can you just talk to me a little bit about what that quote means to you and what you think it's telling us that, uh, that people may have not actually considered in the past? Sure. Let me, let me come at that from a couple of ways, Jason. I think that um, there was a very deliberate attempt back in the, the, the last decade in 2008 uh, SAMHSA embarked on a, on a cost-benefit analysis of substance misuse prevention. It was called Dollars and Cents, so similar to your podcast. And they sought to identify uh, sort of cost-benefit ratios for individual specific prevention programs. And, uh, so these were kind of model programs that had been tested and, and were then implemented with fidelity in certain settings. Um, I think one of the key takeaways is that there was tremendous sort of cost benefit, meaning that, that for the average dollar spent, there was a, the return in some places was, oh, it's 10 times um, that dollar. And some of what they learned, which I think was an important foundation to the way that we started to think about prevention, is that it had these cross-cutting benefits, meaning that if they reduce spending in areas like medical outcomes, they reduce spending in the criminal justice field. So I think that set the stage for us to really understand and to have the proof for the first time that, that prevention does that, that, that when we do good prevention and we focus on creating those healthy conditions, that, that it has all of these cross-cutting benefits. I think that that work then kind of produced a shift in our field to work more at what, what we would call environmental prevention. Now that kind of work mm -hmm. is specifically trying to change or influence community standards, institutions, structures, and the attitudes that, that shape individual behavior that kind of gets to that broader goal you mentioned a moment ago. You know, a key distinction about these are population-based kinds of interventions. Um, and, and I think that they remain important in this conversation because environmental strategies, when you address an issue like a community level attitude through messaging or change policy, you facilitate large numbers of individuals to make healthy choices or to begin not engaging in unhealthy behaviors. So I think it, it, there's that efficiency with regard to the way that we seek to change conditions through environmental strategies like communication strategies and policy and increased enforcement. So I think the point there, changing environments requires this, again, this cross-sector collaboration and it takes time. But once those strategies take hold, not only are they hugely efficient because of the numbers of folks you begin to change behavior with, they have significant lasting power. That, 
you know, unlike a program where you have to implement it every year with a new group of seventh graders, right. uh, this is something that lasts for a great deal of time. Once you mm -hmm. put it in place, it changes the attitude, you shift the norm, or now the inst you institutionalize the, the way that policy is implemented, it changes the community. Yeah, you know, and that kind of takes me back to the earlier question is, you know, where do people start? And, and there are certainly several different versions of this, like you're talking the direct service going into a classroom and working with students or the environmental change portion of this where we can make a, a broader impact by making changes to, um, to the conditions that people are living in and working in. You know, so kind of sticking to that environmental strategies piece, what are some things or thoughts that you have about people implementing those personally in their own lives? Are there, are there ways that you're seeing or have seen people start to introduce the concept of environmental change personally within their own lives? Has that um, been a, a strategy that you've seen be implemented successfully? Yeah, I think bringing it down from the community level, I think that there are ways in which you can think about making change that's normative even at the family level. You know, I talk a lot with parents about the importance of policy and, and policy can even become a family policy with regard to what is encouraged behavior, what is frowned on, what is disapproved of, um, what are the consequences for engaging in certain behaviors in our family. It's, it's, it has the same sort of far-reaching impact within the context at the micro level of a family uh, in that same way. I think that the other example where I see lots of folks thinking about uh, individual level strategies that, that also have an implication of, of environmental is around the issue of the broad, wide-scale adoption of social-emotional learning programs, in part because they have that same ben benefit cross-cutting that, that they have for other prevention-type programs, meaning that if we teach a kid, uh, a young person, how to recognize when they're having some emotion that might then cause them to make different decisions about their behavior and get them in trouble, and then they, they begin to understand that they have choices about how they want to deal with that emotion, then it, then it not only improves their time on task in school and that they, they start to do better on their math test, it also has this sort of broader issue with regard to schools being healthier and safer places. Mm. And then that transfers to family at the same time. And you know, in the longer, longitudinal studies of looking at, at the impact of teaching competencies to young people, you know, has the impact of increasing graduation rates, uh, improving folks, even, even their income and life satisfaction improves overall. So there's really big gains from doing things like that, that again, build on what we understand about the cost benefit of prevention work in general has now been, we go into that framework understanding that it's likely going to have that, let's measure it. Yeah, and I appreciate that. I, I think uh, talking about summing things up in, in a sentence or in just a few words as, as we started out in the uh, in this conversation, I love that term big gains, you know, and, and I, I would love to start associating that with prevention because it really is. And, and you've highlighted clearly some ways that we can make improvements in a variety of arenas just by focusing on, on one simple thing. Maybe it's like you said, it is um, setting clear expectations in the household, having conversations with your children, and that's all prevention. And, and there's a, a pretty direct correlation to some of those big gains that we may be able to pull out of that. So Chuck, as we, we kind of near the end of our time here, I, I always like to give people the opportunity to share some level of sage wisdom that they may have in, incorporated or begun incorporating in their lives that they may have learned along the way or that you really just think may be important for people to know uh, around this concept of prevention. What is something that if you could sit down and look somebody in the eye and say, this is the one thing I want you to take with you when you leave. And again, I know that's probably a very difficult question to answer off the cuff, but uh, you know, is there, is there something that you would say to everybody that is listening to this podcast that you think, 
this is what I want you to take with you when the play button hits stop today. Absolutely, Jason. I, I think that um, both sort of the conversations we've been having and, and the overarching issue about prevention and the pandemic, the, the same issue comes to mind for me with regard to what I hope people can hold uh, in their heads about what prevention is and can do and the important role that we play. Um, and that's the issue about resilience. And I think many folks who've worked in the field and you know, understand way back, the early work of Emmy Wormer about resilience really looked at how individuals could be stress resistant uh, in spite of significant adversity in their lives. And they sought to understand why is that. Um, I think in, in more recent years and looking at resiliency, we begin to understand and broaden it out in some ways that resilience is really the ability to adapt to life-changing situations and stressful conditions. Um, and finally, in the, in the last probably 10 years, Jason, there's, there's more terminology about community resilience. Uh, that's the sustainability of a community to withstand and recover from adversity. Now that's looking at issues like economic stress or a pandemic or any other kind of disaster. And I think to me that, that, that is bringing community resilience into lots of conversations right now, uh, in particular because of, of post-pandemic recovery conversations that are going on. That, that again is one more entry point for prevention. I think that the most important aspects of community resilience involve having an organized, connected community. It means ensuring a seamless system of care and access to services for people in the community. It means looking after our most vulnerable folks. Now, to me, that sounds like one of the key missions of prevention work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of those things couldn't be more true right now during our, our current global situation. And, and we've seen, uh, I think, efforts at that, uh, though there is always room for improvement, I, I would say. but you know, that, that effort towards community resilience has really been highlighted right now. And I think that I appreciate uh, that being where you really want people to focus their thought at this moment. So that is going to bring us to the end of our podcast today. My guest today was Chuck Cleavegaard. Again, he is the prevention manager for the Great Lakes Prevention Technology Transfer Center. Chuck, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate everything you were able to contribute. Uh, and thank everybody for, for tuning in and, and coming along on this, uh, this conversation with us. Uh, this has been An Ounce and a Pound, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Chuck, thank you so much. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me.